trigger warning, April is Sexual Assault and Child Abuse Awareness Month, and these unseen injuries will be discussed in this podcast episode. Resources are available in the show notes, and as always, sending much love and healing light. Well, happy Monday. I am Erica Savage-Wilson, and welcome to the Reframe Brain Podcast, where we center brain health and unseen injuries. Listen, if you are listening to us, thank you so much from your favorite podcast platform. I would just ask that you would please give us a rating and leave us a few comments so that we can expand our community. And if you are watching us, listening to us on YouTube, thank you again, and would love for you to please like, and then subscribe and hit that notification bell. So on the first and third Monday of every month, you can be informed when the Reframe Brain podcast episode drops hot at 7 a.m. So we are in the month of April and we've already had wonderful guests thus far and um, want to go ahead and share with you all that with this guest, I'm going to issue a trigger warning, a trigger warning because of the content of the conversation that we're going to be having also because of the month and we definitely need to recognize the month this month is uh child abuse awareness month and also uh, sexual assault awareness month so this is also an unseen injury it relates to the brain trauma does change the chemical makeup of the brain so we want to make sure that when we're talking about considering brain health and unseen injuries that we are ensuring that we're covering all unseen injuries so I'd like to go ahead and introduce our expert that's going to be talking with us specifically along our subject matter today. And her name is Jocelyn Vaughn. Jocelyn Vaughn is living proof that there is life beyond where you come from. This East Atlanta native developed a passion to make resources more accessible to the community early on, whether expanding programs or helping the public connect with existing organizations and services Vaughn has spent more than a decade doing just that. As a survivor of trauma, she strives to make an impact within her community as a servant leader. Her hope is to eradicate shame and stigma surrounding health matters like HIV, mental health, and sexual abuse, and to empower others to lead the discussion about risk reduction, prevention, treatment, treatment, but most importantly, healing. When she is not working hard in the name of advocacy and prevention, Vaughn enjoys spending time reading and writing. She is a voracious reader and writer and is as soon as she and is soon to be a published author. She is an alum of the unsinkable Albany State University and later served as a University System of Jordan, Georgia ambassador at the Autonomous University of Yucatan and Mexico. If you would all reframe brain community, help me to welcome the indelible Jocelyn Vaughn. She is the Chief Empowerment Officer of I Am More. Welcome, Jocelyn Vaughn. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Listen, it is wonderful, wonderful to have you all, to have you here with us. Um, This is a most serious topic. And um, I'm glad that you have been um, so um, open to come and um, be in the guest chair today 
um, to talk about this unseen injury, um, which is trauma, um, specifically sexual um, assault and uh, child abuse. So before we get into the subject matter, I would love for you to invite the reframe bearing audience into your path of advocacy. Um, we heard a little bit about it um, in your bio uh, around you being an East Atlanta native, and um, it's been something that you've been doing within your community for a number of years. But talk to us about your path into advocacy and how that was developed. Yeah, so um, I would love to have a really great story that talks about how, you know, I wrote some magical letter to a major corporation at the age of 11 and got a policy changed. It was not quite my journey. <laughs> but um, being a survivor, I just knew that something had to switch and be different. So by the time I went to college and started my internship path, um, I had absolutely no intention to end up working in advocacy. I just wanted to work in um, some form, some form of foreign affairs and um, to be an interpreter because I speak Spanish. So I was just like, I'm just gonna do that and that's enough. But I ended up working um, at the Atlanta VA Medical Center, started my career there as an intern for five years through this um, program for students of um, historically black colleges. And so I did that and that led into me working for the Department of Family and Children's Services where I directly connected with families. And I worked for the non-citizen unit so everybody on my caseload was Spanish speaking, um, but I did have about 20% that were from other, um, other native spaces like Ethiopia, um, Somalia, basically a lot of um, organizations that might come to our country as refugees and asylees. So that taught me, you know, and just gave me an experience to have a different level of passion for people of all backgrounds. And then, um, you know, fast forwarding, working with Medicaid, Medicare, working with, you know, what would be deemed indigent population, so to speak, led to me developing a career where I would later be afforded the opportunity of becoming an HIV program director um, in Albany, Georgia. And so I did that for almost five years. It was super, super rewarding. I absolutely loved it and just developed this great, even greater passion to um, speak on behalf of people that are often unseen and just deemed voiceless. Um, and so that's really kind of how, where it led to. And then when I um, transitioned from there and moved back home to Atlanta, um, right before the pandemic, um, I ended up connecting with the organization that I work for um, now working concerning um, child sexual abuse prevention education, but also this organization provides healing resources for adult survivors. Um, and as a survivor myself, I thought, what are these people doing and for free? And so it just ignited that passion for advocacy even greater and really gave me the kind of wherewithal to move forward with it and just kind of, you know, expand my repertoire as it relates to advocacy. Yeah, and um, I love what you do because and she kind of glided through all of this so eloquently, <laughs> um, the passion that you have for the communities that you named, um, you named, um, the veteran um, population, the population um, of um, folks that come into uh, this country as refugees, um, folks that are um, not, they don't have uh, their own medical insurance. So Medicare, Medicaid, you mentioned the so-called indigent population, 
the HIV community, uh, which in rural areas, the numbers are explosive. And you know that um, far better um, than um, myself sitting on the other side of the chair um, to be able to, you talked about when we uh, chatted before, really be able to take the shame and the stigma, and this was also in your bio, out of people that do have a diagnosis. So as you said before, they could be seen. Uh, so um, that's such incredible work and really just laid the groundwork for what you are doing today in your current work and on your own personal platform. Um, so as we move into what the month of April really um, centers, which is uh, National Sexual Assault Awareness and Child Abuse um, Awareness, um, I'm going to read a little bit from what the Biden-Harris administration uh, put out on the whitehouse.gov, wh.gov site um, as it relates to recognizing what this month means. I'm just going to read a part of it, not the fullness of it. There'll be links in the show notes for people to read it on their own. But in part, uh, um, President Biden says during National Child Abuse Prevention Month and throughout the year, I call upon everyone to stand together against child abuse and neglect and show our appreciation of all the hardworking child welfare workforce and allies who are steadfast in their commitment to strengthening families, protecting children, and combating systemic um, inequities. Um, so then he goes on to resource guides for people um, that want to find more about that. Um, and he then, now therefore I, Joseph R. Biden Jr., President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me and the Constitution, the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim April 2022 as National Child Abuse Prevention Month. I call upon all Americans to observe this month by joining together as a nation to promote the safety and well-being of all children and families and to recognize the child welfare workforce and allies who work tirelessly to protect our children. And we honor the strength and resilience of adult survivors of child abuse. And so, um, again, um, the link will be in the show notes. But I read that in part because of the work that you do really does relate around survivors. And so you shared um, that child abuse, um, again, when we chatted earlier, that child abuse is like a virus. Mm -hmm. um, and that it can impact and is impacting every community. Absolutely. Um, share with the audience um, what that um, what the data looks like around um, those numbers, and then again, what the numbers aren't telling us uh, with some of the underreporting due to toxic um, familial um, settings or cultures. Sure, absolutely. So I so love that you know number one, that they recognized it, you know, the Biden-Harris Biden administration, that they rec took time out to recognize it. Um, child abuse awareness has honestly existed truly since 1979 when President Carter first recognized it. But it's something that um, in partnership, it fits so beautifully with the fact that this is also Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which was first recognized in 2009 by President Obama. It's, it's the concept of we hate to say it, but these two things absolutely do belong together in terms of an advocacy piece. When you think of about some of the data showing that every 68 second sexual assault happens. So that's inclusive of, you know, a rape, 
sexual abuse, child abuse, whatever you can think of that may or may not fit in the sexual assault category happens once every 68 seconds. This means while we're watching an episode of um, The Masked Singer, an episode of Bridgerton, someone, 60 someones on average, around 59 to 60 someones have been assaulted during that time frame. That's really hard to swallow when you think about it, you know, from that perspective. And it's and it's very heartbreaking when you realize, just like you said, Erica, this is something that is so um, unintentional, right? People actually absolutely do it with intent and harm at times, but when you think about it, it's something that absolutely can be prevented. Um, other components center around the fact that an individual is most vulnerable between the ages of 18 to 30. More than 50% of sexual assaults take place that during that time frame. So we're talking about male, female, non-binary individuals, humans, 18 right. to 30 on average, more than 54% are attributed to that particular demographic. And it's like, when you think about that age frame, think about yourself at, you know, between 18 to 30 and the concept of you're likely, you know, in college, launching a business, you're starting, you're building a family, you're just living life. And you're right. simply trying to go through the process of living life, building a life for yourself and your loved ones. And you certainly don't intend to, you know, be someone that's assaulted or abused in that manner. And, um, you know, stats that I love to share are one in one in four girls before the age of 18 will experience sexual abuse, unfortunately, and one in six boys. And the truth is, we know that those numbers are severely underreported. I tell people all the time because I, I presented at conferences on behalf of my organization, on my own, on, on behalf of my advocacy brand. And, you know, I literally at times still have people walk by my table very like aloof, like, oh, I don't know anybody that's a survivor. I don't know anybody that's been sexually abused. And by the time I finish spitting the data to them, they're still like, oh, well, I don't know one in four girls. And I'll say, well, you just met me. And I'm not counted in the one in four because my family didn't report. So I'm technically not a part of those statistics. So while, you know, most epidemiologists um, would say, you know, well, the numbers don't lie and the data doesn't lie. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. I agree. As a future epidemiologist myself, I can tell you the data doesn't lie. However, the data never tells the whole story. It yes. never tells the whole story. There's so much going on behind the scenes that we don't know, especially when you're talking about a condition that thrives in silence and shame and stigma mm -hmm. and people don't report. We live in a culture, unfortunately, of misinformation, malinformation, disinformation, and people are so quick to judge and victim blame that they don't allow individuals an opportunity to feel comfortable coming forward. You know, let's not even get into if a male reports versus a female reports. That's an entirely different issue. You know, like those different, the dichotomy of how society views it is completely different. So that's just a snapshot, you know, of some of the, you know, the data concerning it. But, you know, generally speaking, when you talk about sexual assault as a whole, um, you know, it's one in six women and one in 33 men. And in truth, again, we know that those numbers 
um, are much higher. And I do just want to clarify because people may say, oh, you're using the term sexual abuse and then you're also using the term sexual assault. So from a legal standpoint, typically when the term sexual assault is utilized, it, it, it involves someone that's 18 years or older. And when we say sexual abuse, it typically involves someone younger, 17, that's a minor. So, um, so if people, you know, want clarity on those terms, but the, but the truth of the matter is they all do kind of fit under the category of sexual assault and sexual violence for sure. But, um, they don't always involve something egregious per se, from a perspective of people think, oh, it has to be physical touch in order to be abuse or sexual assault. And that's not true. It absolutely can be something physical as well as non-physical. And it absolutely um, can involve a, a situation where individuals don't have to um, be super aggressive in it, but it can include being forced by way of coercion and manipulation. All of these things are included when you talk about the topics of sexual abuse for minors and sexual assault for adults. Thank you so much for um, that um, clarification and that broad understanding of that. And in those terms that you name sexual violence, um, specifically around toxic family cultures. Mm -hmm. um, so when we think about um, in this era of auntie, uncle, I was uh, just, um, I watched just um, the past couple of days, Netflix has um, a two-part piece um, on um, this um, dish jockey um, as they, he was branded from the UK, Jimmy mm -hmm. Savile, who, oh. um, Oh, okay. So you're very familiar. Yeah. Um, I would just say for anybody who, you know, that, that is something sensitive to watch. They do um, have uh, caution um, statements at the beginning of the piece. So about an hour and 30 minutes, you're pretty much watching his rise from disc jockey up to being um, knighted um, and, and being um, loved by the Royals, um, being brought in as an advisor, so to speak, um, of the Royals, a pretty um, amazing. Um, at his death, it was then um, brought forward that I think over 400 people reported um, that they had um, been violated, abused by um, this person. He was in his 80s when he passed away, but he had access um, to um, psychiatric hospitals, unfettered access, um, apartments and things of that nature um, would make very, very um, um, concerning comments as it relates to young people and his victim range um, was said to be in between the age of five to 75 of people that were sexually assaulted um, by this now disgraced person. So if you could talk about, and so he was lauded as the UK's Uncle Jimmy. Um, and that's how people, because he made himself to be so comfortable um, and the person that people would know on camera. So this on-camera personality um, moved his way into people's um, personal space and abused it in churches and um, my goodness, um, a, a number of places. Could you talk to us a little um, more about grooming, um, sure. toxic family cultures where people are inviting people in and 
um, dubbing them aunt, uncle, having them around their children, folks that they have guardianship over. Could you share a little bit around that and how we can um, all move to a better place in terms of grooming, in terms of um, being setting healthy, healthy boundaries for prevention purposes? Absolutely. So, um, and thank you for sharing that background with like Jimmy Seville, because when I was watching it, I was just going like, how, how, but right. I, how? So silence is the first thing, right? So often um, what we deal with in the field when we're talking to individuals, I even talk to survivors on a regular basis that have not had a conversation with their children regarding anything about healthy sexual development, anything about abuse, anything about prevention, they're terrified. So I say all of this to say, I absolutely am not judging you. I'm just making an observation on what my experience and encounter is. And what it is, is that level of fear is particularly if you're a survivor or even if you're connected you know, to someone that you know that's happened to, you just don't want it to happen to your child or you're the, a, a child you know, that you love in your life and you just block it out. I'm just going to ignore it and I'm just going to be as evasive as possible and act as if um, I, I don't have to deal with it. But the studies have shown that prevention is key. You said a word earlier that's so powerful because it's literally the, the principal weapon of an abuser. It doesn't matter if that abuser is a child themselves or an adult access. So sexual abuse is a is a condition centered around access. You know, that whole stranger danger myth is dead. 90% of children know their abuser. This person is not a stranger. It is someone they are absolutely connected to, whether it's a family member, it's a coach, mentor, or a friend, it's a church leader, you know, just giving some examples. But the truth is, is that these people build relationships. They build relationships with the child. They build relationships with the family. They get access and they really do um, most of the time in a very calculated and manipulative way, test and kind of up the ante, uh, up the ante in terms of notches to um, see what they can do, how far they can go um, with the particular child. And also, Similar things happen to adults. Again, adults can be groomed as well. Adults can be manipulated and taken advantage of where you think you're building a genuine relationship with someone and then the tables turn volatile very quickly. And so grooming looks like um, for children and particularly it's isolating, making that child feel really, really great and awesome, almost overly special. Um, it might be giving that child gifts, or it could just generally be special time and attention. Isolation is typically a big part of that. I had someone share one time in a seminar that I was in that her son was taking piano lessons, and um, it was several keyboards in the room where um, multiple children took it. Long story short, eight kids in a room. He started in that room. Next thing you know, he's down the hall where it's just two to three students in a separate room. And then next thing you know, he's in a room by himself. It was gradual. Yeah. It was gradual. And luckily she was able to recognize some of the signs, but it was the teacher um, really preying on the fact that there was some vulnerability in that child, some self-esteem and self-image challenges. And so that child was naturally more vulnerable with what they were going through. And um, that 
potential abuser was starting to use intimidation as a tactic. Well, you know, when we spend time together in this room alone, you can't tell anybody because I'll get in trouble or your parent will get in trouble. So it's literally, it's not always someone screaming and hollering and cursing. It's definitely not always, though this does happen, but it's not always someone snatching someone one up at a park or in a white van. Um, though those things do happen again, but it's typically Again, it thrives in access. And so access is centered around, I have relationship with you and it's easier. But I always tell people the, the greatest thing you can do as a parent, whether you're a bio parent, adoptive parent, bonus parent, or just friend of the family, be involved and engaged in your child's life. It's about you having regular, normal conversations with your child about any and everything. Because the truth is, if you don't have conversations with them, they're going to find out. I remember when I was coming up, it was all about like, oh, they're going to find out one way or another. They're going to find out from their friends in their, at, at school. That's pretty much what we were told, right, Erica? And now yeah. it's centered around, they're going to find out from a screen. And who knows yeah. what screen it's going to come from or through. You don't want someone popping in their DMs on social media saying whatever. Um, it's super important to normalize the conversation and to start having regular conversations with them about um, how this is something that could happen to anyone anywhere, but not from a place of fear. It's literally just almost doing vignette scenarios, role-playing, making sure that they have some semblance or idea of how to respond, but always emphasizing that even if someone threatens you, no matter what happens, you can come to me. Because so often when I'm talking to parents that have children that have experiences, their first question is, why didn't you say anything? And um, unfortunately, the, ch the child didn't feel comfortable for whatever reason, whether it was a seven-year-old or a 17-year-old, they didn't necessarily feel comfortable going to their parent for fear that they would get in trouble or be blamed or that, um, you know, again, they might have succumbed to the intimidation tactics of the abuser and felt like they were going to get that person in trouble because it is hard when you know the abuser because typically it's someone that you have in your affections. You're connected to them. You may even love this person. So for the person that's a survivor of sexual abuse, but also a survivor of incest, when that person is a parent or direct family member, it looks completely different. So again, not for the sake of fear mongering at all, just for the, for the sake of you know, informing you and educating you, an abuser can be anyone anywhere it's it doesn't look like anything it it just as um you know the concept of child sexual abuse itself is pervasive and and very much operates in a viral nature so does the mindset of the abuser because it it does teeter that line where it's like there's a criminality to it absolutely but there's a mental health component because we all know that it's not quote unquote, normal, or nor is it healthy to be sexually attracted to a child. So, right. yeah. And then when you, when you bring in and tie in the concept of like toxic family cultures, it's so, something that we see way too often that really just bothers me. Um, and I am often working through this, even when I'm working with people that I coach, this is the main thing that I am always having to unpack. It's the toxic culture of, well, that's my family and no matter what, um, you know, I'm still going to be connected to them, um, even if I have to look in the face of my abuser every Thanksgiving, every 
uh, Memorial Day picnic, every, you know, Sunday dinner. It's super important to make sure that you're not operating from a place or space where you're putting um, someone else's feelings over your own personal healing. It's, it's super important to make sure that above all, you know, you're protecting, um, protecting yourself. You know, it's, it's though, if you're a survivor of abuse, you probably more than likely, unfortunately didn't have all the support that you needed at that particular time. Um, and honestly, even if you had some, it always at times seems like it was never enough, but it's a situation where when you come to a place in your healing journey, where you're able to make those conscious decisions on your own, it's super important to, to, tr to try to, um, operate from a place or space where you're trying to, um, access multidimensional healing, whether it be spiritual, scholarly, you know, therapeutic, it's a it's a synergy of all of these things, um, and you have to find what works for you. But with what we do know, and I urge family members and loved ones, please please keep your platitudes. We, we love you, but let go and let God is toxic and not helpful to people mm. that are struggling with brain trauma and body trauma as it relates yeah. to sexual abuse and sexual assault. Um, everything happens for a reason. Mm. It's at my absolute favorite. Like I love to just dismantle that one because Amen. it gives people an excuse to yep. pervert the word resiliency. Exactly. And it's not, and that's not what it's all about. You you really want to try your best to avoid telling people to just, you know, let it go and just move on because mm -hmm. these things are progressive and it's a process and you have to work through it. And so sometimes that requires requires us to do, particularly I'm black, so I'm speaking from that. In black culture, we have to um, detach in a way that will often be viewed or conceived as abnormal. Some people feel it like if you take time away from your family during your healing journey, it's considered dishonorable or disrespectful. And this can be your biological family. It could be your church family. It could be your close friends or loved ones that you're connected to. It's just super important to make sure that you're doing what works best for you and your healing journey. Again, it's so many different avenues that you can take, but sometimes it might be, like I said, your bio family, but it could be other family members or loved ones that you're connected to that just won't understand where you're headed. And it's super important that you work through, um, you know, making those choices and decisions that best fit where you are, because that's what's going to help activate your healing in an even greater way and greater dimension. So, you know, I'm, I'm very anti, it's one of kind of like the key tenets of I am more, I'm very anti-toxic positivity. I'm always the person, as you know, Erica, I'm the person that's all for declarations and affirmations, but I am not for not acknowledging someone's pain for the sake of your comfortability. So we're not going to act like, you know, I, I actually have loved ones that have done that to me, like, oh, just don't talk about it. No, we're going to talk about it and we're going to talk about it loud, loudly, but, but, but honestly, Early in my life, I was like most survivors. When people said, don't talk about it, I didn't. I just shut down. I just shut down and, and almost just try to pretend. But I always tell people, um, like the book that I so love, it's actually the one that you see behind me. That book is called Body Keeps Score. Body Keeps the Score. And whether you acknowledge your pain and not, and this is any type of trauma, 
any and all types of trauma, whether you acknowledge the pain or not, your body, every cell in your body has a record of what has happened to you. And so it's going to manifest in one way or another. It will manifest in the lady that you see at the door at the grocery store whose attitude is deplorable. And it's like, man, what's wrong with her? Why is she acting like that? Or the gentleman that seems mean and cantankerous, what's going on? This is trauma manifested. People have um, not necessarily had all the tools or even the knowledge to know how to begin to apply what they're going through. And so it manifests poorly sometimes, you know, and, and so this is why we have to extend grace, but it's also why we have to unpack those toxic family cycles and cultures. Thank you so much for that. And so I want people to be very, very intentional about listening to the fullness of what Jocelyn shared, because that is the way that we get through and not around. And that book that you mentioned, uh, the Palm Monday, um, uh, April the 4th, our episode was a corporate and wellness expert, uh, Sherelle Moore Tucker, who also referenced that book, The Body Keeps Score, oh, okay. because the phrasing, there's issues in the tissue. So this is, we're very intentional on the Reframe Brain podcast. All of these pieces do link together and that you referenced that in the same month um, with the guests before that lets you know that, listen, whether or not you submit to therapy um, if you are a person that has used that um, phrasing that I um, have long since fell, fallen out of agreement with and was never really in contract with it, everything happens for a reason, let go, let God, um, that there is work to be done. We all have work to do. Um, mm -hmm. And to do that work and to go through and not around, the body keeps score is further evidence um, to let you know that whether we deal with it or not, it does show up. So thank you for that. And we're coming to a close. So I just want to, um, you did mention I am more, you do coaching, you do training, you are the chief empowerment officer. So that is the kind of CEO that you are, um, chief empowerment officer of uh, your agency, I am more, and that's E-Y-E-A-M, more, M-O-R-E, I am more. And I love what you all do. So um, we've talked about prevention, normalizing conversations with children around sex health. Um, and um, for those people that have experienced abuse, which is a trauma, which as you have said, and I, you know, and I can share, it, it is something that is a brain. It, 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 it does alter the way that you emote, think, um, it, it, it does impact the brain as well because trauma hides in a specific place in your brain. So for those people that um, are survivors that are listening, that are viewing, um, could you talk um, and just share with us very briefly the tenets? You started getting into those of I am more and the focus on courage, um, creativity and confidence, how it meets survivors um, right where they are very quickly. Sure. It really just centers around um, exactly like you said, courage, creativity, confidence, and making sure that you have all those things together for you before you start trying to reach your hand out to someone else. So, so mm -hmm. often, um, if anybody's like myself, 
we have challenges and you balance between perfectionism, but also procrastination and trying to work through that um, as you work through issues with validation and discouragement and disappointment at time. So really, literally all I do through I Am More is try to utilize my healing journey, which is ongoing one day at a time um, and my trauma trauma recovery journey to help others through theirs, whether they're starting it or continuing it, just trying to help them balance the concept of um, it's super important that they recognize exactly where they are and that they own all the parts of them, good, bad, and indifferent, sometimes ugly, and that they simply take a look at things um, with a fresh set of eyes, but those eyes belong to them, recognizing that there's more already inside of them. So often we are taught that, um, you know, our more is in somewhere, someone else. We're looking for the perfect career, the perfect wedding, the perfect spouse or partner, when the truth is, you know, God lives inside of us. We are mm -hmm. a, a great people that um, are reflection of that and considering that it's really time that we all start seeing ourselves with those eyes and not the eyes of the world because we're always going to get negative messaging um, nothing is going to be good enough in the eyes of society but it's really learning to see and hear yourself in a different way in vain and that involves seeing yourselves through the eyes of your original creation thank you so much and so coaching and training you do speaking events how can people connect with you? Are you still accepting clients? And could you share your links on social media? So I just had um, a, a couple of new clients come on. So right now I'm not accepting them, but that's forever evolving because people are at different places in their healing journey. So I will say, if you just visit me at IamMore.com, which is E-Y-E, -E, like I, um, IamMore.com, or even follow me on social media. Instagram is my principal point of contact, as well as Facebook. Um, I am more. Uh, you absolutely can keep up with encouraging messages, stay up to date with what we're doing. We're getting ready to have um, for Mental Health Awareness Month in May, getting ready to do a phenomenal webinar on healthy connections and healthy boundaries, which is something we all need help in ongoing. And so you'll be able to find out about all of that great information via the social media handles, as well as IamMore.com. Excellent. So please um, do yourself a favor. The color schemes are wonderful, very inviting. I am more.com. And uh, I ran these numbers uh, past Bond to make sure that these were um, definitely numbers that would get people help that they need. So I want to um, end the podcast by sharing um, some phone numbers that if you um, have been impacted by sexual assault, want to pass along this phone number for you to call. They also have a chat feature. Um, the number is 1-800-656-4673. And the chat function is hotline.rain, and that's R-A-I-N-N dot org slash online. This will also be available in the show notes. And then for um, the National Child Abuse Hotline, that phone number is one 800 422-4453 um, at Child Help Hotline. That's all one word, childhelphotline.org. There is a text, a live chat function, and there's also a map 
um, for you to get local support um, or to reach someone. So thank you um, for engaging in this conversation. I hope that if you are a survivor, that you understand that you are not alone, that shame is a manufactured emotion. Take that shame away and we want you to move through, not around. Thank you so much to our guests, um, my great friend and sister. This is, and I've been very honest with you all around um, my own challenges I had as I was moving through um, my recovery process and I had, um, and I still have a suicide prevention plan. This is one of the people that's on that um, particular plan. I love her dearly. She is an expert in um, so many different ways and has given her life to advocacy. So thank you so much to Chief Empowerment Officer Jocelyn Vaughn. Please follow her. Go to her website, IamMore.com. And thank you to the Reframe Brain community. I hope that this was helpful to you. Um, and just know that, uh, listen, we do this journey. Remember, one beautiful breath at a time. Love you. Be well. Speak soon. Bye.